Thank you all for being here today on a Wednesday. Welcome to the Hudson Institute. Today we have a timely panel on the situation in Iran. We're going to look at the protests, we're going to look at sanctions, and we're going to look at uh, regime viability. We have a panel of experts. Uh, it's, it's, it's a great honor to host you all today. To my immediate left, Ali Reza Nader, independent Iran scholar, formerly of Iran. Rance, excuse me. Um, to, to his left, uh, Mariam Maymar Sadagi. Sadegi, sorry. And uh, Benham Ben Tilleblu, research fellow from the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. And Mariam is the co founder, going back, co founder and co director of Tavana, an e learning institute for Iranian civil society. And uh, to Benham's left is Ali Reza, correction, is Nader Oskawi, um, senior fellow, Scowcroft Sco Center for Strategy and Security, Atlantic Council. And he's got a book coming out in November called The Temperature. Rising, Iran's Revolutionary Guards and Wars in the Middle East. And I look forward to reading that. And thank you all for being here today. Uh, we're going to run this like a Sunday morning roundtable. We're going to do a scene setter, talk about what's going on uh, in Iran, and I'm going to throw it to our experts, and we'll go back and forth. So you won't hear eight to ten, ten minute opening dialogues. We'll have a live conversation, a lively conversation, and we hope to cover all these topics and hopefully uh, educate the administration on what to do and what not to do in Iran and how we can go forward. So I'll start with today's New York Times article where the Supreme Leader is basically throwing President Rouhani under the bus, blaming him for the economic situation and also blaming him for crossing red lines. And it's a very interesting position for the Supreme Leader to take. Um, I'd like to throw it to, to you first uh, to talk about the current situation, what, what you think is going on, and then we'll just uh, We'll just start the discussion. Well, that's a, that's a large question, what's going on in Iran these days. Uh, I think the country is in a pre-revolutionary state. Uh, the uh, uh, governing ideology, Islamist ideology, that was govern, the governing principles of the Islamic Republic, uh, <coughs> in, in both strands, both in brutal ways and both in their moderate strands, uh, um, uh, are, not, are not working. Uh, people have lost su uh, support, have lost their trust of the government. Uh, they are showing that with uh, mass, massive demonstrations uh, in the country, uh, asking for regime change, um, personified by the, by the uh, slogans of Khamenei, Mark Bar Khamenei, reminds us of the Mark Bar Shah during my younger years as, a, as an Iran analyst. Uh, uh, the regime basically has been unable uh, uh, to uh, resolve the uh, problems, economic, uh, political, and uh, uh, military uh, uh, situations it's facing. That we'll go over all of those as the as the uh, panel uh, uh, discusses these points. But the uh, bottom line is that people have lost confidence in the regime to resolve the problems. You don't trust the regime because of the corruption. You don't trust the regime because of, uh, of uh, failed policies for both factions and, uh, and demonstrations is the way, is the way showing it. So this is the pre-revolutionary state Iran is in. Okay. I would add that, that the resentment towards the moderates, the reformers, whatever you want to call it, call them, is, is maybe more than, than Khamenei and, and the so-called hardliners because Rouhani you know, pretended a lot of things, promised a lot of things, uh, wore a lot of hats, and, and none of it has come true. 
And um, so the resentment of people who are considered, have always been considered the mustazafin, really are the mustazafin. They are the, they are the poor, the working poor, the unemployed poor, um, with a lot of overlapping social crises, um, addiction, prostitution, um, severe social um, problems. They, they are the ones that in late December, early January revolted, and they continue to, to fuel, um, fuel this uprising that really is nationwide. Um, but it's, it, it really includes everybody else as well. So um, it's, it's, it's the result of several existential and moral crises that are overlapping. And uh, at a time when people expected some kind of dividend from the nuclear deal, um, even those of us who opposed the nuclear deal, why did we oppose it? M many of us opposed it because we thought that this is, going to, this is going to satiate society in a lot of ways. It's going to be a buffer to the, to the state when it needs it to be able to solve its, its economic crisis. But they didn't do it. The regime didn't do it. Basically, they pocketed the money for themselves. Or they, they paid Assad. They, you know, they, they continued to fund uh, foreign uh, adventurism and, and terror and annihilation of innocent people, basically. And the people saw that. Not only did they not get better, did their lives not get better? It, uh, they got significantly worse. So it's this economic situation that is added on top of already this, this tyranny that has lasted for 40 years. It's just like, it's an explosion. Just to, just to kind of <clears throat> piggyback off of that, um, there's, there's no secret that there's social, economic, political malaise in the Islamic Republic. It basically comes with the territory. It's the nature of the regime. It's the reason you have such a chasm between state and society in Iran. Um, but why the December protests matter and the different iterations of those protests that we've seen matter, even though the scale has been a touch smaller, uh, why they matter is because it's the social base of the regime revolting, right? These are the people that you, the regime didn't always have to ply with money or with force. These are the people that were expected to show up to the Friday prayer halls. These are the people that were expected oh. to kind of chant death to America. And when you can't get your social base to revolt, it's a conceptual problem for the regime because it takes the regime's raison d'etre away. And it exposes, basically, the authoritarian nature, the, the core skeletal military structure of what was once kind of called the clerical regime or the clerical oligarchs. So there's, <clears throat> there's that moment kind of happening in the Islamic Republic to be aware of. Um, and then when you see the different iterations of protests, the social classes that have been coming out after January and February, you saw the women's uh, hijab movement, piggybacking off of a movement from this summer and then escalating in February, taking off the, the hijab, the White on Wednesday movement. You saw the environmentalists with the drying up of the rivers in March, farmers in the month of March, truck drivers, trade unionists all the way through April and May. Um, the Bazaris, you know, the, the Bazaris are the people who bankrolled the revolution. Don't forget, in the half millennia of Iranian history, there has always been an alliance between the clergy and the bazaar. But ironically, once the clerics came to power, that is when the bazaar saw their social status weakened. So when you have bazaris marching on the parliament in Tehran in the month of June, chanting the same slogans, if not more aggressive slogans, that the others were chanting, that people with genes cooler than you and I were chanting in 2009, then you begin to realize, wow, this regime is conceptually in trouble. And the place to kind of keep your eye on now is not society, because I think society is gravitationally pulled away from the regime in a way that that bond will not be reparable. What you need to look at in 2019 and with the sanctions is the security forces. And then looking at the sh and how the Shah's regi regime crumbled and apply that framework here. 
So what security forces are defecting? Why is these, how is the Islamic Republic learning? Why are they deploying the Basij here? Why are they deploying law enforcement here? Why are they deploying vigilantes here? What does this tell you about how the Islamic Republic trusts its security forces? Because these are the ones who are gonna be on the front lines. And it's really up to them to decide, not as much the protesters anymore, mm. if the regime stays or goes. Mm. I think as the economic pie shrinks because of sanctions especially, the wolves of the regime were turning against each other. Uh, there was a theory that there would be a rally around the flag because of sanctions. A number of op-eds were written about it uh, in the major newspapers. Uh, but it, uh, clearly, we're seeing exactly the opposite of that. Uh, not only are Iran is not rallying around the flag, uh, they're turning against the regime increasingly as a regime fights against itself. So even if the regime can't uh, unify on the issue of how to resist <clears throat> pressure, uh, I don't think it can be expected to control the population for that much longer. Uh, we haven't seen major defections from the regime. I think there's been, since December, uh, this expectation in Iran and outside of Iran that something um, major and dramatic would happen that would just turn things around completely. Uh, that hasn't happened yet, um, whether it's Ahmadinejad's faction uh, being uh, crushed even more aggressively and turning against the regime, um, or other figures even defecting to the West uh, very publicly. And we haven't seen that. There have been reports of massive capital flight, which I think is very telling. Uh, there have been a lot of reports of regime officials sending their families abroad to the US, Canada, Europe. Not so much the US anymore, but Canada and Europe. Right. Um, <laughs> Doors closed. <laughs> right. So there are all these indications, but nothing um, major has happened. Uh, you know, to be a kind of a, a, a juncture. I think December was the be beginning of something major, uh, but whatever that something major is hasn't come about. I would agree that uh, the security forces matter uh, a lot. There's always this assumption that the guards on the Bastige would stand and fight with the regime to the bitter end. I question whether that's true. Uh, there could be a lot of dissatisfaction within all the security forces and the Aritesh, the regular military. Uh, there's not a lot of hard evidence, unfortunately, to uh, show whether um, they're very committed or turning against the regime. But I think that will break sooner than later. I think November is the key month because Iran is gonna come under virtual full economic blockade. There, you, don't, you won't have warships blockading Iran but for all intents and purposes, uh, there's gonna be a full blockade of Iran, financial blockade of Iran. Uh, for a modern economy, it's basically, essentially, a physical blockade. Um, you know, from like the 1950s that right. happened with Iran. And so for the uh, US administration, for the Trump administration, you know, I think it has, whether intentional or not, adopted a regime collapse strategy, uh, regardless of what it, says, uh, but there's no follow-up in terms of what comes after. And this one thing to say, well, it's up to Iranians to determine 
their future. But I think the U.S. is very invested in the outcome now right. uh, because it is strangulating Iran's economy. And so if Iranians rise up and come into the streets by the millions, uh, I think it will be key what the U.S. will do, you know, what kind of signals it sends, but what kind of policies it adopts as well. Because it's, it's one thing to sanction Iran. I think the U.S. has done that very well and shown it's very effective. But it's another to support opposition groups or uh, decide very solidly uh, whether uh, Washington is going to engage the regime to force another deal, which I don't think is a possibility, or whether uh, once and for all it'll figure out what to do with the post-regime Iran in uh, tandem with the Iranian people. Thank you for that. Uh, I'd like to thank C-SPAN for being here today. They're covering the event in our C-SPAN audience. Um, what's really interesting about what, what I heard from all the panelists today is we're in a pre-revolutionary state. There's resentment towards the moderates. The regime is losing its social base. And you, you said it, it was conceptually in trouble. Is it actually in trouble? And I put this to all four of you. Uh, what should the U.S. do to accelerate it, do this right, or stay away from? I, I think one thing that is smart is, um, and I know a lot of people disagree probably, is when, when Trump says that he's ready to meet any time, that, that's very smart because it puts the pressure not just on, on Khamenei, but on all of Iranian society in that they look at Donald Trump and they say, he's ready to talk, he's ready to talk. So why isn't, why isn't Khamenei moving? Why aren't they doing something? So the, on the one hand, there's this enormous financial pressure on all of society and the regime. I don't know what the, all the, the regime lobbyists in town talking about how this only hurts society, it doesn't hurt the regime. Yeah, right. I mean, if, that, if that's true, then why are they doing all of this lobbying um, to get rid of the Did you say that again? <laughs> if it's true that if it's true that the regime doesn't care about the sanctions and the, and the sanctions only hurt the Iranian people, then why are all these regime lobbyists in town writing these op-eds and appearing everywhere and talking about how the sanctions are meaningless? And why did the, why did Trita Parsi spend 17 years of his life at the National Iranian American Council lobbying for one thing, the removal of sanctions. Give me a break. The sanctions have worked. They worked to get the Iranian regime to the negotiating table under the Obama administration. They're working right now. We don't know exactly to what extent Khamenei is authorizing indirect talks even right now. But we know that he knows. He knows because he's seen how it's been in the past, and he knows he can see the future, just like we're seeing the future, that he's in deep trouble. The only way he can get out of the trouble is if he negotiates. Those 12 points are, I'm sure, being discussed very intensely within the regime right now, and how can they meet the demands of the United States government? I think we, um, I mean, I'll speak for myself only, I have a responsibility to press very hard for Iran not to become a Venezuela scenario. What is a Venezuela scenario? You have, ex you have extreme economic collapse, the likes of which maybe has, has never happened in world history in, in a modern economy. Venezuela is very similar to Iran in, 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 in its region in that it was very advanced socially and economically. It was plenty of foreign investment, and then it went to, to the very bottom of the region on so many social and economic indicators. But what, what, is, what is Venezuela today? Maduro is still in power. 
and and society is basically completely in chaos. So what we don't want is for that to happen to Iran. The good thing is that these sanctions are extreme. They're very uh, happening all at once. And so the hope is that they will have effect all at once. And we will see, at the very least, I hope, the Iranian regime meeting those 12 demands, but ultimately for people like us who are focused on civil society, who are focused on the, the long aspiration for democracy and human rights, for there to be regime change, for this government to go and for a transition to a democratic government that is the will of the people of Iran to, to come about. I want to ask one quick question. Would, would the president be making a mistake if he met with Rouhani? I've argued that he should meet with the Supreme Leader. Yeah, I, I, I meet to. with the President when the Supreme Leader makes all the decisions. What, yeah. what, what do you yeah. think? So far, so far um, Khamenei has, the Supreme Leader has played a really good game of being above it all. You know, as, as if these, these younger people come and they have these meetings and negotiations and he's standing above it. Whenever he wants, he can say, I don't trust them, I don't go for it, I'm not going to accept it. And, but of course, the Trump administration knows that, I'm sure. Um, and if the regime starts to indicate that they are going to adhere to the 12 demands, then maybe the administration has to just say, okay, I'll talk to Rouhani. Rouhani's fine. Um, but ideally, <laughs> Khamenei should be at the negotiating table face-to-face -face with Donald Trump because, let me tell you, that is a humiliation. That is a humiliation for the Iranian regime. With the Supreme Leader, yeah. definitely. Uh, the... Uh... Islamic Republic is in trouble, not just because of the uh, problems inside Iran, but also in the region. Right. Uh, the uh, US policy uh, toward Iran has been really focused on what's going on inside Iran. With the sanctions, they're hoping to uh, at least change the behavior of the regime, which is impossible. Uh, if not, uh, to help uh, in any way or shape for, uh, for regime change inside Iran. The, uh, what the U.S. Uh, uh, policy is missing, a missing piece in the U.S. policy, is Iran's regional interventions. Uh, we pay lip service that we are going to oppose Iran, uh, Iran's intervention in Syria, for example. In Syria, as most of you know, all of you know, Iran started uh, 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 intervention, is intervention to oppose uh, the Sunni uh, opposition and to keep Assad in power. Well, those goals basically were achieved, virtually were achieved. Still, Iranians stayed in Syria. Why? They wanted to parlay their victory over the opposition into now uh, uh, permanently basing themselves in Syria, to be a permanent presence in Syria, and to challenge Israeli, uh, Israeli power and influence in the, in the region. Uh, we uh, 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 in the US uh, should say that's not acceptable to us either. Uh, and uh, Iran really has no place to permanently base itself in, inside Syria. Same thing in Iraq, same thing in Yemen. Uh, uh, CENTCOM commander have, have started saying uh, uh, that uh, Soleimani uh, has been behind uh, a lot of mischief, mischievous uh, affairs of, the, of, uh, of Iran in the, in the region. But of course, we knew that for the longest time. For probably 17 years. All those things years. were happening inside the CENTCOM area. All of, yeah. all of that. So they have to, they have to translate that into a policy. So what I'm saying that aside from what the U.S. can do internally, I agree uh, 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 with my uh, same colleagues about what's, how, how the sanctions can can affect uh, the behavior of the regime and can affect actually the protesters on the streets 
uh, in the long term. But also, we should not forget about the regional dimensions, the interventions of Iran. And that's where it's the weakest point of Iran. If you want to hit Iran, hit by mean not necessarily kinetic. Uh, hit Iran politically, ideologically, militarily. You can do it. You can start doing it in Syria. You can start doing it in Iraq. You can start doing it in Yemen. By defeating Iran in, those, in, in the region, you are going to help the opposition right. uh, to uh, have much more effective way against the against the IRGC inside Europe. Hasn't and that the, started already? Yeah, the chants say that. The chants actually say that uh, the protesters are saying no more Syria, no more Iraq, no more oh, Yemen, yeah. no more Lebanon. So the U.S. government should actually listen to the people. It started protesting. in a sense that yes, the com uh, Central Commander is now publicly identifying Soleimani as the. Uh, uh, the uh, the commander as a problem, mm -hmm. but I, don't, I haven't seen mm -hmm. that to be translated into policy. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, yeah. well, you, you, you see a regime that's under severe sh stress, and you, know, you ask if it's in trouble. By November, it has to make very hard decisions in terms of if it wants to continue supporting the Assad regime and Hezbollah and Hamas and all these various uh, militias indefinitely. Uh, because those sort of costs add up, and the population is very well aware. Um, so, I think this—you know—the sanctions are also putting tremendous stress on Iran's um, regional position. And I don't think the U.S. needs to do anything dramatic. Just let things play out uh, for the next several months. There's no reason for Trump to meet with anybody, and there's no reason to for the U.S. to hit Iran anywhere in the region. Uh, because its whole position in, in the entire Middle East and is under tremendous stress, uh, and the internal unrest is feeding that. So I think the U.S. is in a really good position if it doesn't mess it mess it up. Right. In the next and if you months. look at if you look at what the U.S. Treasury uh, told Baghdad, mm -hmm. listen, any U, any Iraqi banks doing business with Iran will be subject to U.S. secondary sanctions. That's the kind of pressure that we can put on those regional. Regional allies, but basically those that border Iran, and, and it's very telling that in itself. If Iran is supposed to be the major power in Iraq, and the Iraqi government cuts off financial ties, what does that say about Iranian influence in Iraq? Exactly. We want Iraqis to pay more attention to Iraq than they are paying attention to Iran. Um, yes. Just just quickly on that point, and then broader on, on the kind of discussion we had here, because a couple couple little footnotes to that. One on the Iraq issue, I think. I still would not underestimate Iran's influence in Iraq. I'm not disagreeing with Ali Reza because, oh my God, if you need any proof of the power of, of the deterrent effect of U.S. secondary sanctions, look at the exodus of European and foreign firms leaving Iran before we even got to the August 6th deadline. So it, for those of you who are familiar with the academic literature on sanctions, especially the stuff that came out in the mid to late 90s, oh, sanctions don't work, a lot of that discussion focused on primary sanctions, unilateral sanctions, and the debate in Washington after 9-11, after the terrorism executive order 13224, after banks and businesses began to develop robust compliance, risk, due diligence mechanisms, you've seen the growth and the deterrent effect of these secondary sanctions become a tool of U.S. national security policy in the way that it wasn't mm -hmm. in the late 90s. So, you know, the academic literature has to catch up to the way this tool is evolving in Washington and the way it's being used. So this is one kind of broad stroke. On, on Iraq, I think one big reason for the flip-flop of Abadi's statement is, okay, where he first says, okay, we don't like sanctions, but we're going to comply. Then he waits about a week, and then he comes out and says, oh, no, we just mean, you know, Iran's access to the U.S. dollar. Um, because of the very issues you mentioned. But in that interim, you had all these Shia militias come out. 
Kataeb Sayyid Shuada comes out and says, oh, we're actually going to bust these. They literally say that we are going to break these sanctions. Harakat Hezbollah Nujaba, Asayib Atal Haq, all of these guys are coming out saying they're chastising the national government of Iraq for doing what is in the best interest of the national government of Iraq. And if the U.S. is looking to take its strategy off the shelf and implement it as policy to do what Nader was saying, um, you need to actually go after these entities in Iraq, in Syria, wherever they are in the region, because that actually forestalls conflict with Iran. If Iran is ascendant abroad, it's going to be emboldened. It's, going to, it's like the Soviet Union. It goes, it goes, and goes until it feels any resistance. It takes the path of least resistance. And my fear for Iraq is not that the national government, because remember, Abadi may not stay that long. You know, he's in a caretaker government position now. The national government um, may make a decision, but Iran's militia network, Iran's threat network, Iran's proxy network, Iran's influence on the seminaries in Iraq, Iran's influence on businesses in Iraq may help bust those sanctions. And what we, look, what we saw, even when we had international buy-in, political buy-in to the sanctions in 2012, 2013, a NATO ally like Turkey helped establish this massive sanctions-busting scheme, gas for gold. So while I fully support the resurrection of those sanctions, we also have to look at what countries our primary jurisdictions for sanctions busting and plug those loopholes in advance of November 4. Well said. Okay, so we're, we're looking at uh, indicators and, and precursors to regime instability. Uh, you've all mentioned some of the indicators and the metrics you're, you're seeing that could accelerate the fall of the regime. Um, what, are, what are some of those? And we talked about the military. We talked about the IRGC Quds Force, the besieged, the vigilantes, and the regular army. Uh, in, my, in my talks, the people that focus on the IRGC and the regular conventional forces in Iran, it's their thought that the conventional military will side with the people. And then you'll have the schism within the ranks of the IRGC Quds Force. And the besiege itself is, is, is the, the lower ranks are, are barely paid, and they could side with the people as well. Um, one or two generals leaving in high positions, leaving any of these uh, forces, uh, would be an indicator of, of that exit. You're talking about capital, flight, leaving the country. Uh, what, are, what are some of the things that we would expect to see from this force if the regime collapsed? Would the RGC Quds Force under Qasem Soleimani become al-Qaeda on steroids and wreak havoc in the country? be able to do things, or would they simply melt away? I know it's a long question, but you're all experts on this, and I wanted to hear what you had to say. Well, just very briefly, the, for, for several years now, the, the, the regime has tried to scare the Iranian people away from agitating for their rights. And they point to Syria, and they say, look at, look at what happened to them. Uh, you know, they, they wanted more out of life. They wanted their freedom. They wanted their livelihood. And look what they got. And implicit in that is a threat that we will do to you, we will do to Iranian society, our very own people, what we've already done to the, to the innocent Syrian people. So whether or not they will actually do that, I think is, it, it depends a lot on, um, just like Benham talked about, how we need to plug the holes in terms of the financial infrastructure. Um, we need to plug the holes in terms of security right away if there is a change in, in Iran. I mean, I think that's one thing that we should have learned from Iraq is that when there, once, the, once the regime has been toppled through whatever means, um, hopefully through nonviolent civic 
um, resistance from the people of Iran and the peaceful transition. But even after that, once the regime goes, to your question, it, there still may be networks. There still may be ways that they can um, terrorize, the, ter terrorize the Iranian people, terrorize throughout the region. And I think that we need to have the intel now. We need to have the preparation now. We need to have the will now to be in there and doing the things that are necessary to prevent that. Uh, the uh, issue of putting pressure on the uh, IRGC and uh, Basij and uh, in general armed forces in Iran is, is, is a key uh, to the future development of, uh, of, the, of the state that I call it pre-revolutionary now. Uh, uh, people on the street are already putting pressure on the, on, the, on, on the regime by demonstrations, by voting of their, is really their vote of no, no confidence in the regime to resolve their problems. And uh, an, economic, an economic situation too, by uh, Riyal losing his value really is a vote of no confidence in the regime. So people are doing what they have to do uh, uh, of uh, demonstration. And by the way, these demonstrations surprise the regime uh, because more and more during these seven months, it looks to be that they are organized and they are coordinated. Uh, I did not expect to have uh, same kind of a slogans against the regime being uh, uh, pronounced in every single city during any phase of demonstrations almost simultaneously. Uh, so it's much more coordinated than what we think. Of course, the nature of the Iranian society is not that the people can organize in open. They have to organize underground. They have to coordinate underground. And the social, social media is helping them mm -hmm. uh, with that in immensely of how to, how to coordinate. But I think this is much more organized and much more coordinated than, than the regime would have, would have liked or the regime would have expected. Uh, on, the, on, the, on the IRGC type, uh, side, if we put pressure, if the US puts pressure on the IRGC outside the country, that pressure would force them, uh, force the IRGC inside the country uh, to think twice about what's going on uh, uh, and what would be their, uh, their, their position in Iran uh, if the demonstrations uh, get out of hand. And, and that's the time that we are going to look at who's, who is going to really uh, cross the red line and defect from the regime at that time. It's very important to put the pressure on them in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen, everywhere they are doing it. And that, uh, that pressure would help uh, not just the demonstration by the people, but the pressure from outside, like uh, coming from US and the West, uh, can help really that fissure with, within, yeah. inside yeah, when, the IRGC. When, when Israel bombed the bases in Syria, uh, somebody said, yeah, we, ju we just saw all those benefits from the Iran deal go up in smoke. Right. You know, all that money right. that was supposed to help the Iranian people, who all these people lobbied for the Iran deal outside the country, saying that, don't you care about the Iranian people? Don't you care about the Iranian people? Don't you care about peace? First of all, there was no peace. The people of Syria were being annihilated because of that Iran deal. Once the Iran deal was in effect, then you know we saw all the money go to Syria and when all those bases, and then Israel bombed it, and it was just poof, gone. That's, that's a very important point right. because uh, the May 10th uh, <clears throat> attack, uh, Israeli attack on the on the Iranian positions in Syria, uh, um, uh, uh, really also showed how unprepared uh, yeah. the God's force was. After all of these <laughs> billions of dollars, seven billions of dollars annual expenditure in Syria. They they threw they threw forty rockets to uh, uh, toward Israeli uh, front positions 
and, and then Israel come back uh, unproportional uh, and, and hit all of the all of God's force installations in Syria, and there's no response. So that will bring down that whole image that the, uh, that the IRGC is building for itself, that they're all powerful. No, they're not. After all of these things they said about, uh, right. uh, uh, about uh, Israel and about how they're going to fight Israel, how they're going to liberate Jerusalem, Israel hits them in, on May 10th, and today is late August. There is no retaliation yet. So that will bring that whole image down. The six-hour air campaign by the Israelis where Qasem Soleimani thought those Russian S-300s and 400s were there to protect his offensive operations. And the schism that it created, that we're not very good at exploiting schisms, was there. It was yeah. felt in Tehran. It was felt on the ground. It was definitely felt by the Quds Force. And, and immediately people in parliament in mm -hmm. Iran started talking about how, oh, we don't, we don't like the Russians. They don't like us. We don't need them. They don't need us. Immediately right, it right. fell apart. Right. You know, what I think is really fascinating about Iran, for me, the most fascinating aspect of it is it's probably right now the biggest civil disobedience movement I can think of happening in the world. And it's uh, progressed quite a bit since December. So in recent weeks, you see mass protests in stadium, like Tehran's Azadi Stadium, tens of thousands of people potentially protesting. And I feel like the Iranian people are actually way ahead than we think they are. Uh, because as Nadar said, in recent months, actually, I've observed the protests have become much more organized and synchronized. Right. And they're happening in interesting waves with different sectors. Uh, the trucker strikes, you know, I think uh, they're still in the second round. So actually, I think there's a lot happening in Iran we don't really see or we see snippets of. Um, I mean, it's good to have the debates on how the US harnesses. Right harnesses it, but I think the, the democracy movement in Iran is way ahead. Uh, and it can actually, if it can turn out massive amounts of people into the streets, it could be very effective. And I think that could very well happen in the next three months, given what we've seen. Even one of these major stadium protests, if Everybody turns out of the stadium into the streets. You know, you have tens of thousands of people in one spot. I want to get back to you on that, but I want to get to you on, on the last question, but I have a follow-up for you. Sure, just, yeah, very briefly, just because <coughs> the conversation is being held in Washington, nonetheless, just to throw another Washington perspective, it's as critical as we do want to be of Iran and, and its bad behavior, it's important to right-size the Iranian threat exactly because of what Nader is saying, because they actually don't have this demonstrated capability. We have the capability. The Iranians understand that. That's why the balance of resolve in the U.S.-Iran contest is always more important than the balance of capability, because the balance of capability is permanently slanted in the U.S. favor, okay? Um, and so when you look at Iran's model, like the, the talking, I forget who said this in Washington, but it's at least a, a decade, if not two decades old, that you know, when you're looking at Iran's networks and stuff abroad, look for depth and not breadth. What has happened since the Arab Spring, Arab uprising, is that Iran is doing breadth, mm -hmm. not depth, okay? So there's a couple theaters where it's heavily involved in, Syria and Iraq, historically slated to involve in there. Um, but other areas like Yemen, Bahrain, th these are you know occasional pickpockets. They don't have the 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 depth of of that relationship with Iran, and it's Iran's instrumental use of these theaters against U.S. interests and against U.S. allies and partners in the region. So 
it's important not to build Iran up to be this dinosaur when there is the balance of capability heavily slated on the other side. Just the willingness to use it. Yeah, it's, it's really um, So going back to your comment, I think, and this will be to, to all of the panelists here, the biggest civil disobedience campaign we've seen, and it's under the threat of violence. Again, if you look at the, uh, the U.S. elections, the day after the president took his oath of office, we had, we had a big protest parade here in, in D.C., yet it represented less, if, if physical presence was less than 0.001% of the U.S. population, yet it received 24-7 news media coverage. And it was a political event. It changes minds. It, it moved people in a position away from the Trump administration. Uh, these protests in Iran are, are estimated at 5% of the population, uh, probably more. Uh, they're, they're starting to be organized. Uh, they were organic and leaderless. Now there's more momentum. And you know, 5% of the population protesting would be the equivalent of 22 million Americans marching on DC. That would be a chaos event here. That would change government. And, it, and if it had the media coverage from the international community and the US, it would replace a government. Uh, so what's lacking in Iran? Is it media coverage? I mean, these protests seem like they're built for Western democracy support. They're built for Western media coverage, yet we're not seeing it. We're not seeing it. And what can be done, and I'll put that to all the panelists, what do the protesters need? Is it media coverage? Is it Western democracy support? What, what is it? I want to get to media coverage briefly, but I just want to inject a bit of pessimism here, and that's why I mentioned the security forces first, is that there is still a large amount of cohesion in the security forces. And when you talk about the Basij, this is Iran's only old volunteer force. You know, with the IRGC and whatever, you can get conscripted into the IRGC, you can get conscripted into the Artesh. That's why those forces, like Michael was saying, are, are likely to go once there is a, a big contest between state and society on the street. But it's important to know there, are, there is still zeal. The number is dropping of people who support the regime in Iran. But within the security forces, that's, that's really the place that you need to look at. And unfortunately, this regime is quite adept at repression. It's learned from every successful iteration of protest. If you look at 94, you look at the Qazvin protest in 94, the IRGC didn't fire then. The regime learned. Then you look at 99, the Tehran protest, hybrid. IRGC and law enforcement together with university police, layered approach. Then you look at 2009, IRGC publicly, but mostly Basij and Ansar Hezbollah vigilantes, right? It wasn't a Libya Gaddafi tanks on the streets, it was snipers, it was men on bikes with guns, riot police. They're learning, and this is, we're, we're just, I'm simply reporting how they're learning. And they're learning, you know, it, it has a very high J curve. First, they, you know, they're shocked by the protests, and then they react quite quickly. So once you got to 2017-18, the use of LEF instead of Basij is instrumental. And I think it would behoove the Trump administration, the law enforcement forces, and it would behoove the Trump administration to go after the interior ministry, the law enforcement forces. I think we went after the interior minister of Turkey, the interior minister of Turkey sanctioned. The interior minister of the Islamic Republic of Iran is not sanctioned. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's interesting that after all these repressions, we still are seeing all these uh, mass uh, the uh, protest uh, on Iranian cities. Uh, this week is the 30th anniversary of a mass uh, massacre of Iranian political prisoners uh, inside Iran. There are tens of thousands of political prisoners who were actually serving their, their time. Uh, they, were, they were put in front of a firing squad and, 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 and killed. Uh, is mostly, this, is this the one Montezeri objected to? Yes. 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 Mostly, mostly uh, of these tens of thousands, mostly uh, from MEK, but also leftists, also uh, the uh, 
members of the uh, ethnic and, and national minorities in Iran. Still, uh, after, after 30 years, you see people are coming on the streets and then and, uh, and, and at face of this kind of a suppression. I think the uh, situation is getting out of hand for the regime. I don't, uh, yes, of course we have to be very uh, 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 careful to see how the uh, security forces are going to use all of the suppression under, under the control against, against what's going on inside Iran. But I think whatever they do, situation is getting out of hand. People are not, are not uh, this is not the situation that they see some uh, some besieged people on the street that are not going to, 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 to come out and, and say Mark Bar Khamenei, death to Khamenei. They are doing it, uh, they're doing it at this rate. Under the threat of violence, under the threat of Under the threat of violence. Under the threat of disappearing or being sent to heaven prison, yes. Yeah, one thing that, 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 that Nader reminded me of with the, uh, the anniversary of the prison massacre is there have been a lot of um, uh, anniversaries and remembrances of the past. Actually, I'm surprised all of us talked. We never once mentioned Reza Pahlavi. We never once me mentioned Reza Shah. Reza Shah, the, 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 you know, Iran's Ataturk, the modernizer, the nation builder. His name is being called in protest after protest throughout the country, really by the Mustazafin, the, the power base of the Islamic Republic. Um, recently, we had anniversary of um, assassinations of um, the That's last right. prime minister of... of, of um, the Pahlavi era of uh, Shahpur Bakhtiar and uh, Feridun Farrukhzad, kind of a Renaissance man, both very much beloved, respected. Uh, Reza Shah's corpse was was found and created all kinds of like, very cathartic uh, remembrance of the past and a, and a yearning for the past. Um, um, we had. Um, uh, messages by a lot of musicians on the outside whose, whose music is listened to on a regular basis inside the country, but very much censored, all giving their video messages of support to people who are protesting inside the, inside the country. We had the death of a very prominent actor before the revolution who was blacklisted and prevented from acting at his funeral. Again, there was this massive catharsis for the whole nation of, of all that has been lost, all the opportunity, all the freedom, all of the national identity, the Iran that has been lost. Um, Abdul, Fattah, uh, Abdul Fattah Sultani, a, a very prominent, beloved human rights defender uh, who's been basically imprisoned for so long, his, his whole life has been uh, on targeted repression. While he, was in, he has been in prison, his 30-year-old daughter died of a heart attack. It tells you about how many people suffer for every one person who is a political prisoner. And at his funeral, again, everybody just so aware of, of all of the pain that this regime has cost um, the people. And so all of these things are happening at the same time, but as Nader said, it's very important that through social media, wherever it happens, the whole country and all the Iranians outside the country are very much aware. And I would argue that maybe, maybe these protests aren't so well organized. Maybe what it is is that when something happens anywhere, it goes on social media so quickly that the same slogan, the same tactic, the same kinds of people are out on the streets everywhere else. It doesn't really take that level of organization anymore. And just very briefly on this, and that's why it's important not to call the protests, especially from December and on and the different stri uh, strikes and labor movements as merely economic protests, because they're distinctly political protests. The slogans they're chanting, it's the, the bazaaris who come out aren't saying, give me a more favorable exchange rate. They're saying things like death to Palestine, 
You know, they are, everyone is looking, especially with the Reza Shah stuff, Miriam is right on, everyone is looking to more publicly grab the third rail of this regime. They're saying, we know we can't say death to Khamenei, so we're going to fill up half a stadium and say it anyway. We know that, you know, you always say death to Israel, so we're going to go for the exact opposite and say death to Palestine. We know that you are investing heavily in Syria as a theater of conflict, so we're going to say, get out of Syria, think about us. They, we know that you, for like 40 years, have been saying that America is the enemy. So we're going to march on the parliament building, and we're going to say that the enemy is not in America, the enemy is here. Every time, so this is, this is again, the balance of resolve. This Iranian state knows in its contest with America that it is winning the balance of resolve. But the Iranian people versus the security forces are increasingly winning that balance of resolve by saying these things, by doing these things. You asked about the media's role, and I think it would be great, actually, if the media paid attention. A lot of reporters say, well, we don't have access to Iran. We're not based in Iran. We can't confirm uh, events if we can't have a presence there. Uh, and that might be valid to a certain point, but I just find it very surprising that this, in this day and age of information, right. uh, the media can't be more creative about reporting about uh, civil disobedience and mass protests in Iran. Mm -hmm. Like Mariam said, the chance for uh, Reza Shah or the Pahlavi family or the Crown Prince. Uh, so the, there's, there's been some reporting on it, but not nothing major. Right. It's, what's amazing is uh, 1979, the revolution uh, got so much media attention and Almost 40 years later, you have this mass uh, uprising in Iran, and it barely gets any media attention. And communications have improved uh, so greatly. So it's, and there are many different reasons we can uh, speculate as to uh, why that is. But I also think the media in general has been in this uh, pro-JCPOA mode that it can't get out of. Right. Uh, I was talking to actually a senior U.S. official recently, and I, you know. I asked him, why doesn't the U.S. get uh, more firmly behind the Iranian opposition? And he said, well, you have, to, you have to consider all these years the U.S. bureaucracy was geared toward promoting and enforcing JCPOA. And I, f I feel like that applies to really any group of people. Uh, their mindset hasn't really changed. Uh, I think it's changing slowly uh, for quite a few in D.C., uh, but we're not there yet. It's actually really unfortunate. I don't want to end on a pessimistic note, but a lot of the people who are actually funded by the U.S. government, the U.S. government's democracy and human rights portfolio of programs, on their social media, they're either their project that is funded by U.S. taxpayers or their individual social media presence, they don't share the videos of the protests. There is some kind of you know fashionable sense that Echoing the voices of the people who are protesting inside Iran is somehow dangerous because Trump is the president. What does the one have to do with the other? If you believe that people who want to be free should be free, then you should be echoing the voices of those people inside. You should be sharing those protest videos. It shouldn't matter who the president of the United States is. Right. It's, it's, this is built for Western democracy support. These are women's issues. These are minority issues. These are gay issues. These are, these are issues that Western media is built to support, yet somehow, and I've talked to, to reporters that positively push the JCPOA, and there's this thinking that if you criticize a regime, somehow you're being disloyal to the whole JCPOA campaign or the Obama administration.
It's no longer an office. So, like you mentioned, why is it important because Trump's president? Why is it important because Obama is no longer president to continue to, to somehow shield what this regime is doing? And, and, and I think all of us here agree that the JCPOA fueled this adventurism. And if it wasn't for the IRGC Quds Forces activities outside of Iran, there would likely be a JCPOA today. Uh, there was little evidence that Iran mm. cheated in the Iran deal, but there was all the evidence that Annex II of the JCPOA fueled this adventurism and the chance from the Iranian people that you squandered the economic opportunities from the JCPOA on this adventurism instead of focusing on us mm -hmm. is something that we should be able to get behind uh, as, a, as a media and, and as a government. And again, this is built for Western democracy support. Um, going back on Benham's point of how intelligently these people and, uh, and demonstrations choose their slogans uh, to go to really hit hard at the regime itself. Uh, um, um, my colleagues mentioned uh, the, uh, uh, calling for Reza Shah. And uh, uh, interesting, they are not calling for Mohammad Reza Shah, who is the son, who was much more uh, recent <laughs> than Reza Shah. Why? Reza Shah, people are not loving Reza Shah because of dictatorship of Reza Shah in Iran. People are loving Reza Shah because he opposed the clergy. Uh, the 200 years of, of uh, the 200 years of coalition between the clergy and the, and the imperial court during the Qajar, Reza Shah single-handedly ended that coalition, kicked the uh, clergy out of, out of the uh, imperial court. That's why they are calling his name, and not, not his son, who actually brought back that coalition in, in, a, in a limited sense of way, uh, gave more freedom and much more, uh, much more freedom to the, to the clergy. Uh, uh, he thought that they would... Uh, be in his, in his favor against the, against the left. Uh, but at the end, those were the same clergy that actually caused the collapse of the, of the, uh, of the republic. So yes, uh, on, the, on the positive note, you can see if, uh, these uh, slogans are very intelligent, are based on the history of Iran, are not just, uh, uh, just uh, e economic deal. It's highly uh, political. That's why I really think this is a pre-revolutionary uh, states in the country. So is the narrative that if the U.S. gets behind the protesters somehow that will move the Iranian people back towards the regime? Uh, none of you agree with, right? No. Uh, if the U.S. got behind the protests, would it move the uh, Mustazafin back towards the regime or the Bazari back towards the regime? The, the, the United States government is already behind the protesters because these sanctions really are a huge, huge boost. And whenever I talk to people inside the country and, and I talk to very different kinds of people. There's, there's an expression, you say, how are things? And they say, um, thankfully, things are really bad. Because they, they say, thankfully, things are really bad. Like, we, we, we are in economic collapse, thank goodness. Because this is what's fueling everything. They realize it. They do not blame Donald Trump. They realize the reason that they have been suffering for 40 years. They understand that the sanctions are a direct result of what the Iranian government, what the Iranian regime is doing. Um, the U.S. government is already behind the protesters. The U.S. government already has a regime change policy. What we need to be careful of is that it re re maintains that and maintains moral clarity as we move forward. Unfortunately, we don't have a Ronald Reagan in the White House. We don't have someone who, in his bones, believes in the power of freedom, the, the universal aspiration for, for freedom, equality, justice. Um, 
that is not a good thing. But we, but we do have Pompeo. We do have Nikki Haley. Whenever Nikki Haley talks, believe me, the Iranian people love it. I wish she would talk more. We have so much respect for her. So it's there. It's already there. What we, what we really have to be careful about is to make sure that the Iranian government does not manage to somehow convince the United States that it is abiding by this and that, and that Donald Trump doesn't get really happy about wanting to make a deal. So this question to all of you, what mistakes could this administration make? based on Miriam's point. Mixed messaging, um, and that's already happened to some extent. With the meeting with Rouhani statement? Yeah, I don't think it's necessary. Uh, I think the US actually making a very public gesture uh, would be very helpful if it's appointing a special envoy official for Iran matters. I think that would be helpful in sending a message um, but overall, I think considering what comes next is very important, not just for the US, <clears throat> but for all parties involved. Um, and the, the kind of opposition the US uh, should support should be very clearly uh, designated that you know, it has to be sec secular and demo democratic, fully democratic and representative. Um, no more of these guessing games is the U.S. going to go with. Uh, those. I think those policies need to be really firmed up right. uh, more than anything. Those would be my recommendations. Um, so we have a, we have a two-year window if, if the president doesn't get reelected, and then we have a six-year window if he does. Is Iran going to play the waiting game? Is the regime going to try to play the waiting game? It could try. I just I don't know how it's going to survive. November you don't give it two years? On. Really? I mean, it needs an economy to survive. Right. Uh, and the Iranian people are not going to put up with the situation in Iran. For two more years. Right. If they do, it's going to be chaos. What I see in Iran, I mean, we talked about potential scenarios. You know, people cite Syria and Iraq. I don't think that applies to Iran because for a lot of uh, reasons, the regime in Iran uh, created the uh, situation in Syria. And there are other scenarios as well. You have like an Eastern European-style uh, collapse or what happened in the Soviet Union or South Africa. But I think regardless, Iran is going to be very chaotic uh, the next few years. I don't know if it's going to be mass violence or uh, a lot of uh, fact actual factional fighting within the regime or new groups emerging. I wouldn't actually um, say that new groups won't emerge. I was talking to somebody and he, uh, the other day, and he said, have you heard about the anarchists in Iran? So the anarchists are an emerging group in Iran. And so who knows, uh, you know, there's, there's so much youth anger and a sense of nihilism that anything can emerge in Iran. So that would be my prediction more than anything. It's not going to be smooth at all. Uh, and there's going to be a lot of uncertainty. And I think we're going to see things that really shock us. I think the, the last few months, I think, I've seen things that are uh, very surprising, um, that caught everybody by surprise, and I expect to see more. Can you give me that. a couple of those things? Um, I think the popularity of the Pahlavi dynasty was surprising. I think it was always there. Um, the, not only the wholesale rejection of the Islamic Republic, but the clergy as well. And one thing to consider for the U.S. or any opposition group is uh, how to 
allow the clergy and the guards as well to melt away from the regime and offer sanctuaries. It can't be all punishment. Uh, there has to be a positive reason uh, for people to defect. But I think the clergy as a, cl a class of people in Iran are deeply in trouble, more than anybody. Um, somebody was telling me that in Tehran, he went to Tehran for a couple of weeks and he didn't see one cleric in the entire city because uh, clerics are afraid to come out. Um, so that's important as well. You know, th th there can be a situation where you have debathification in Iran because then the regime is going right. to not it's, it's not the U.S. responsibility per se, right. but there's things the U.S. can do to hurt or benefit That them. would push the RGC into the insurgency. Uh, again, uh, the White House should once and for all make a decision that the people of Iran do not want regime changing his behavior. They want the regime to change because they've, they've, uh, they have uh, experienced uh, uh, 30 years of so-called moderation reformism in Iran, from Rafsanjani to uh, Khatami to Rouhani. It doesn't work because, because the moderates, the, uh, the uh, uh, reformists, cannot uh, change regime's behavior. They tried. They tried very hard to change the regime's behavior from Rafsanjani down. They, they failed because that's, the, that's how the structure of this regime is. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the brutal strand of that Islamic Republic is in entrenched and is in power. So at, uh, uh, remember in this town, uh, not long ago, uh, the word regime change was uh, their divorce. Uh, that's what the Iranian people are saying. Even less, less less say, this is my comment. <laughs> uh, so, so I think the White House should, right. should once and for all go accept that, that this is not about the regime, change of regime behavior, it's about change of regime. Not that the U.S. government can do that. The Iranian people will do it. But U.S. government should do everything, anything in its power to help that, to facilitate that, uh, including uh, limiting regime's influence outside the country. Uh, in, in the region. Right. So we'll go to you and then we'll go to Mary. Sure. I mean, you, you're all going to find this quite rich. You know, I'm going to try to pull the humility card. The guy with the cufflinks is going to try to be humble. But just excuse that for one second. Um, I think regime change still is a dirty word, which is why there is so much of this gray space uh, in what the administration's Iran policy is. Every, every, every reporter I talk to, anyone I talk to, wants to know what is the policy? Is it behavior change or regime change? So my advice to the administration is push away from the table on that debate. Don't let the debate be defined by behavior change or regime change. It's up to you to change the paradigm. Otherwise, the paradigm will forever be you will sell out the Iranian people for some kind of slightly better deal, or you will collapse the regime, collapse the country, invade militarily. Neither of those are good scenarios. Neither of those are scenarios that I don't think anyone on this panel wants. So it, it means it's up to the administration, but the administration must be able, willing, and must be willing and able to take its cues from the street when necessary. So I actually don't fault the administration for in its 12 points on May 21st by Secretary Pompeo. You look at those 12 points, those are all about Iran's foreign and security policy. Because believe it or not, the US has long-standing, almost four-decade issues with Iran's foreign and security policy. And there is a need to check, counter, roll back, contain Iran's foreign and security policy. And we are seeing the very dividends of not checking, countering, rollback, maintaining Iran's foreign and security policy in Iraq, in Bahrain, in Yemen, in, Yemen, in Syria, in Lebanon, with the Palestinian groups against Israel. These are the manifestations of the failure of that policy thus far. So there is an absolute need to change the regime's behavior. 
once you get to supporting the Iranian people, you can't be handicapped by the paradigm of, of regime change or not, though. You should be able to, one, stand up for the Iranian people rhetorically, because I think this administration has already busted the myth that if you support them, you're going to drive, their, drive their, their in, themselves into the regime's hands, and two, that they're going to rally around the flag. Next, you actually have to do targeted sanctions against <clears throat> key members of the regime, right? You can't have a NATO allies interior minister sanctioned, but not the interior minister of the Islamic Republic of Iran. You need to establish parity there. Go after all of the regime officials. Long-standing name and shame campaign. Three, make sure the communication support is still there. VPNs, all the things that offsets Iran's attempt to create a halal intranet, right? You want to make sure that they can communicate freely, because the assumption is if they communicate freely, the things that result from Iranians on the streets is more in line with U.S. interests and in you know, the regime's interest. Four, publicly accentuate the cleavage that already exists between state and society, right? What the Islamic Republic of Iran habitually does is not in the national interest of Iran. I think actually no administration, you know, we have you know, qualms with the Trump administration in the Middle East, believe it or not, but no administration has made this point more clearly than I think the Trump administration, because essentially the charge that Trump is putting to Iran is, the government of Iran is not putting Iran first. Sound familiar, right? When you're putting the Assad regime over the well-being of your own people, you're not putting Iran first. When you're having this mediocre, watered-down deal with the Russians over the fate of the territorial integrity of the Caspian Sea, and you're not asserting Iran's right there, you are not putting Iran's first. When you roll over on Persian Gulf and call it Gulf and Arabian Gulf, you are not putting Iran's interests first, right? The Islamic Republic of Iran is a poor steward of the Iranian national interest. This is key, because it's not about demonizing the Iranian people. It's about continuing to keep the pressure on the apparatus of repression in Iran, because there is more in common with the Iranian people and the American government and the American people than meets the eye. So I wanted to say something about you know, 10 sentences ago. It doesn't make any Sorry. sense now. No, 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 that was excellent. <laughs> but I wanted to go back and say, so. So we have regime change. So you caution the administration to stay away from the, the, the term regime change in order to assuage reporters. You're going to be handicapped here. Yeah, You're not going to get the policy off the ground. Even, I don't know if the policy is regime change. I think the policy is behavior change. With the policy is regime change by not calling it regime change, would give, would, which always gives us that uh, the thinking in the region, well, that's brilliant. They want regime change, but they're saying they don't want regime change. I, mean, I don't know if that's they want it. <laughs> Well, it gives, you, it gives the best of both worlds and a lot of flexibility, openness. I mean, it also leaves the door open for the Iranian regime to think that it can actually meet the 12 demands and have the sanctions lifted. If you say from the get-go that you're for regime change, then why would Khamenei ever do anything about the 12 points? But, but the 12 I mean, points... I mean, why would Khamenei do anything? The 12 points I wouldn't. don't change anything that we've been talking about, the humanitarian issue, No, the they oppression. don't. No, but that's by But design, it would shore up the regime, though. Wouldn't that's... that be what, a mistake by the administration to to say that the 12 points were met and that the regime is fine and we stay with us? If the 12 points are met, right. obviously I would love to have, you know, tomorrow a democratic government in Iran and to be done with this. But if the 12 points were met by the Islamic Republic, by Khamenei, Rouhani, and all that, it's going to be a significantly different kind of government. It will still be a repressive, uh, a very, maybe very repressive regime. However, it'll be... Um, I don't know how many people are familiar or remember when Milosevic was bombed by NATO. Um, 
a lot of people were upset because of all, all this bombing, all this expense, all these people dead, and he's still in power. Yeah, but he was toppled two years later because he was a completely different kind of leader after the NATO bombing. And everybody looked at him and said, you are weak, you're ineffective, you're corrupt, we have nothing anymore because of you, because of this bombing. The 12 think, points are like the NATO bombing of Serbia. But I think we are beyond that. Uh, the uh, Iranians showed, Khamenei had shown, that even when a regime is changed in Baghdad, they go to the uh, uh, negotiation table and they take that very seriously. So it's not that if they, uh, if they think that uh, U.S. is in uh, favor of the regime change, they are not going to sit down and negotiate. Yes. Even, even, negoti even yes. in Baghdad, the regime is changed, they sit down and negotiate. Uh, I guess we are beyond that um, in a sense that uh, we, uh, people are saying that even if the regime accepts 12 points but keep the repression inside Iran and keep the economic situation inside Iran is not acceptable to them. This is what the people are saying. Protests will this continue. is the protesters are saying. The protesters will continue Up to on. them, yeah. And I, t and, I, and I think we are beyond that. Let's, let's do some reform here, some moderation there, some change in foreign policy here, and, and, and call that Iran policy. That's a non-policy. And when they are not talking about regime change, but they really want to have regime, I don't see that. Because this White House is very, very good of saying what they what they what they want. They can they can make a couple of tweets and uh, tell exactly what what they're after. It doesn't when take much. I, when I saw the twelve points, I thought, well, this isn't going to happen. Right. <laughs> and I still hold to that. I don't think it's going to happen. Well, so in terms of setting U.S. policy, it's smart. It's uh, a lot. The 12 points are huge. I'm concerned about the deal making. Well, they got to 10 points, so I went in big and I got 10 of them. Well, if I'm they could take their time that. making, I think each point might take six months to a year or two years, right. so they want to engage that process. They're, that would outlast the Trump administration. They're welcome to, yeah, any, any administration. But the sanctions won't be lifted. Right. So as far as the regime is concerned, they're not getting anything. So uh, right. on the question of regime change, if you read Gene Sharp, he talks about what's happening in Iran, basically, because we've seen it before. And a country can have a civil disobedient movement or a political defiance and still be supported from out the outside. Just because Iran is having a democratic movement doesn't mean US involvement in any way means the US owns it or it invalidates uh, the agreement. So that's something we have to keep in mind when we use the words regime change. I think. Uh, so it's a mistake to right. say they're regime very change. loaded. They call you know into mechanized U.S. divisions rolling into Iraq. We're not talking about that. Yeah, but that's the ADZ answer, where regime change is 160,000 forces on the ground, and you do debathification and you send the Ba'ath Party into the insurgency. This is different. There are A to Z options. And of somewhere in the middle. Different. The Iranians are calling it. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, we actually have the people doing this. That's, that's totally different. It's different. Than different. And, and there's no reason to I, have I, U.S. military yeah, the, on the I ground. think U.S. policy toward the Soviet Union is instructive toward communism right. in general. And the U.S. Uh, signed non-proliferation agreements with the Soviet Union and still press the Soviet Union, as did Moscow. Uh, so. You, you, there's no reason where you can't apply pressure. But I think that's the model here. Yeah. The Islamic yes. Republic came to power with the mother of all regime changes, right. of overthrowing 2,500 years of continued monarchy in Iran. 
And those guys are not the ones who are saying regime change is a dirty word. They came to power with their, through a regime change in there. So regime change in, in during for Islamic Republic did not include 135,000 uh, US troops on, on the streets of Tehran and other cities in Iran. Right. It did involve millions of people on the street protesting against the Shah. Right. That's what brought the Shah down. The regime change uh, does not necessarily mean that we have to put the troops on. Nobody's calling for that. Already people are saying that they want to change regime change. And it's interesting, the regime that came to power through a regime change, now to them, regime change is their divorce. It's always like that, by the way. These totalitarian regimes tend to be the result of populist uprisings. And then those populist uprisings become these totalitarian regimes that, that, that everything they do is about preventing a populist uprising. This is true for all the communist regimes. It's true for all the fascist regimes. It's true for Iran. Um, one thing to keep in mind is that there's never been a democratic movement that has succeeded without outside support, with at least solidarity. But you know, the American Revolution, supported by the French. Um, South Africa, the sanctions were called for by the people of South Africa. The whole world was mobilized. Um, the fall of the, the Iron Curtain and the, the, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the, um, the break with communism and, and free open societies, open markets, all of that, strongly supported by Reagan. Every day, practically, I remember I was a child, you know, the name Sakharov, Havel, all, it was all in the nightly news. We're talking about it. When, when Natan Sharansky was, was freed and went to Israel, I mean, all this stuff was the nightly news. Why are the Iranian people supposed to be different? Why is it that it's bad for the United States government to say to a Muslim society that you deserve better, we know that you know that you deserve better, and we're here to help you. We want to help you. All of this is all of this is regime lobbying that the United States should not interfere the people of Iran don't want it to interfere unfortunately all the academic experts have listened to all of this regime lobbying and that's what when when the green movement happened we had these great professors probably you know really great hearts so they wanted to do the right thing but they went in there and they told the Obama administration don't do anything don't say anything and of course the Obama administration that's exactly what they wanted to hear because they had already written he had already written two letters to Khamenei and he had already started those secret negotiations the, the only Iran thing he wanted was the Iran deal exactly yeah I just maybe a slightly different tack from Mary I'm going to get a little bit more pessimism not just Sharansky and solidarity let's let's look at what the elites thought what influenced them most? We know mm. very openly uh, what influenced the people on the street. Well, do we know what the national security decision-making apparatus thought in Poland, in Romania, uh, in, in Iraq, in the Soviet Union? Let's study de Klerk of South Africa. Let's study Ceausescu. Let's study Gorbachev. So my, my academic... My, acad- my, my <laughs> academic advice fear. is... Pe- yeah. <laughs> Uh, Study what kind of fear, you know, what, how did de Klerk look at the sanctions? Let's look at that. So this is just my, my two cents, because I think Khamenei has studied the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the collapse of the Soviet Union. He knows the color revolutions. He he knows all the tricks in the books. Mm -hmm. So that's why the bar is important, like, you know. I don't think he studies, does he? He does. He's he's a a literary fan. He's a literary fan. Uh, he's at least read the. He's at least read some of the great Russian literature. The least we yeah. can give uh, that one-armed guy is that. Is he implementing a strategy that will keep the regime in place? I think his strategy looks is, like it's is, failing. Is continuing the Khomeini strategy, which is the su- the success of this that strategy of a regime built on that many contradictions and how it's been here for almost forty years could collapse tomorrow, could collapse fifty years from now. I have no idea. 
But the, the success of that is continuing the Khomeini line. And Khomeini from outside, this line in, in Paris, he said in Persian, let the fruit ripen. And then once he said, let the fruit ripen, then they stayed on the streets until the Shah was toppled and the military didn't fire anymore. It's going to so, be a total failure. Right. It's going to be judged. Maybe he'll die first. He's a judge of failure now, and he'll be judged of failure when he's gone. Will Rouhani survive? You think Rouhani's going to be asked to step down now that. Physically? Well, no, the physical, you know, the supreme leader. <laughs> well, that's another option. I asked, how, 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 how could Rouhani go away? And he said, well, he could be asked to resign, or he could be. I said, well, how about Ro the resign? Rouhani more and more is becoming a non entity. Yeah. Yeah. Less relevant. He's being scapegoated. Uh, he's being scapegoated. Yes, they need. But, but, uh, but Khamenei, in, in his latest uh, speech, uh, defended him to stay in power, saying that the, uh, the enemies want to. Uh, uh, you know, uh, right. they are the ones uh, uh, behind the uh, uh, the collapse of the of the uh, of the government. But Rouhani more and more is becoming a non-entity in Iranian politics. Rouhani, Zarif, Khatami, even now he's been brought back from, you know, oblivion. Masum um, Ebtekar, uh, these people who know how to speak English, um, they are Khamenei's tools, and he uses them when he needs to use them. Um, and uh, but the thing, the question is whether he will use them now. You right. know, because is it a different time? Is Zarif going to be? How many times is Zarif going to go to Europe and be told nice things but no contracts? Right. You know. Yeah, I think Rouhani is already done. Uh, I mean, what he offered Iranians was the possibility of a better life through what he called moderation. Uh, that failed completely, so he has really nothing else to offer at this point. I mean, if, he, uh, if the other alternative is something worse, like uh, Raisi, his opponent, was in the last election. I was going to mention Raisi. Would he We're already at worse. So, I mean, right. I mean, it's going to get even worse than this. I mean, the economy is going to shut down come November, so what's the difference? Uh, so he has really nothing to offer. and he. It's hard for him to just cite a reason and leave his office. Those offices are basically non-negotiable. So he might just stay out. Doesn't really matter that much, uh, to be frank. Uh, and whether even the guards take over officially or not, they make the decisions already. And um, they're terrible decision makers when it comes to the national interest. And so is Rouhani uh, in that regard as well, in his own way. Right. What mistakes could the regime make? Are they making them now? In the next in the next two years? I mean, you gave you gave the regime. You, said, you say this publicly. Let's not. <laughs> no, no, no. So, so, tell the regime how to succeed by failing. Go. Or how to fail by succeeding. I, I, it, I don't know. It's best not to not, not to. You're have right. This you're stuff. right. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I, I never really got around to answering the other question, which was the administration, the Trump administration. Yeah, what mistakes could it make? There, right, you know, right. be, be a, you know, all, all this is driven by strategy and goals. So pick the goal, right? Push away from the table on the regime change, behavior change, but pick pick the goal in your heart of hearts, and then you have to move swiftly towards that goal. And I think what Ali Reza said about the Soviet Union is that. You know, that, that is more the, you know, adept analogy here because it's, it's flexible response. Don't just think Reagan on the Soviet Union. Think Truman 
through H.W. Bush. Think flexible response. Think of it like mechanical and chemical weathering. How, you know, rocks crack on the street. This is just a bad analogy, but, you know, rocks crack on the street over time. Rocks are pretty sturdy things, but they crack over time. Concrete cracks over time because of the drastic changes, the mechanical and chemical weathering that are natural and that are introduced from outside. So there are natural changes occurring in Iran right now the chasm between state and society. And there can be changes introduced by foreign pressure and by giving offsets to the foreign pressure, saying, here's my list of demands, come meet it, and we will not relent on this pressure, right? So pick, pick this strategy. But know that if Iran somehow says, okay, I'm going to stop my missiles under 2,000 kilometers and then flight test once a year, know what a bad deal is. Know what a fake fix is to the JCPOA, right? Because believe it or not, this is a Washington audience. We didn't use the word uranium once, but all this conversation was begot by leaving the nuclear deal. So let's remember, you know, the, the men in Iran know how to hoodwink US diplomats, whether they're Republicans or Democrats. And if you express an overzealousness or an overeagerness for deal making, they're gonna hoodwink you again. It's the bazaar mentality. You come in, you look at this carpet. My father's in the carpet business, I can say this, no offense. <laughs> you know, you know, you express interest, they're gonna sell you sell you the carpet at the price of your father's blood money. So don't express a lot of interest in, in this kind of deal. Keep the high bar, keep the pressure, but offer the regime an offset, just like that statement. I wouldn't have framed it that way about no conditions or whatever, but the fact that you know, the US would sit down with, with, with Iran to offset the pressure says to the Europeans, who you also need to help, uh, that, this is gonna be, that our strategy is effective and that we have goals and we're not just bumbling through our Iran policy and that therefore you must help us and these are the theaters that you must help us. The Europeans haven't designated a single uh, entity since 2012 or 2013 that was on the WMD missile terrorism nuclear file. Why? They were supposed to do that when they were going to fix the deal in the run-up to May 8th. They were going to designate 15 and then they decided not to in the end and now we have a bit of a transatlantic split. And yes, I agree that the weight of U.S. secondary sanctions is going to be driving the train here. But, but don't forget, we, we have other interests in the world besides Iran. And then you have to adjudicate you know, what is important and when. So know that the regime is going to try to throw you a lifeline. The regime hasn't begun to test the full array of its missiles yet. On Monday, it tested a short-range ballistic missile. Get ready for the nuclear-capable stuff coming after November 4. There have been zero naval harassment in the Persian Gulf. Iran may return in 2018. Iran may return to that and use that as leverage to get you to want to you know, keep your talking point that Iran hasn't done this in, in so many years. Those actions lose Europe. Those actions lose support. I think, I think those actions would keep Europe. The one thing that would lose Europe is to formally step outside the boundary of the JCPOA. Until that, I think the Europeans would continue to turn a blind eye, much like they did turn a blind eye 2015-16 when they were launching nuclear-capable missiles. What I, what I do like is a disconnect between European governments and the European private sector. The European private sector says no, or European governments say, go, go into Iran. It was much like Secretary Kerry telling European banks to invest in Iran while OFAC, being a very small group in the U.S. government, was whispering, don't, U.S. secondary sanctions. Including American banks. Yes. Even didn't, didn't listen to Kerry. Right. And, and, and the regime has a big appetite to make mistakes, by the way. We don't have to guess what kind of a mistake they're going to make. Look at what they did on Caspian Sea the, the other day. Right. Uh, the uh, on 1978 uh, Vienna Convention on the continuity, principle of continuity, uh, gives Iran a very good argument if they had gone to Hague, a very good argument than, uh, that Iran and uh, uh, it, was, it, was a, uh, it was a treaty signed between Lenin and Reza Shah uh, uh, making Caspian Seas both surface and floor, 50-50 between the two countries. Uh, that treaty was re-signed in 1940 when Soviet uh, uh, Russia became 
USSR. Uh, so until the day of the collapse of the USSR, that treaty was in force. Iran could have uh, argued that uh, still uh, the, uh, the uh, principle of continuity would mean that Iran would keep its 50% and the other 50% would be divided uh, among, the, uh, among, the, uh, among the four parties uh, uh, in, the, in the neighborhood. At least they could have gone to The Hague arguing that because they had the convention of 1978 Vienna on their hand, on their side. <clears throat> they did not. And guess what? This is becoming another uh, torn to their sides because corruption and, uh, and political repression was the ones that people were, uh, were mentioning about what this uh, regime uh, is, is incapable of doing anything, of what they had promised during the Shah. Uh, 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 they are incapable of, uh, uh, during the revolution, they're incapable of doing it. At least they thought this regime was so-called independent. But with, with the mistake they made in Caspian Sea, they are really pulling the rug, I'm sorry, under, under, uh, under, the, uh, under their feet. So this regime is, uh, can make mistakes all along, including in Europe. Would you say that Hamadan Air Base was like that? Hamadan Air Base, yeah. definitely. Yeah. It shows the strength of the Russian bargaining position. Yeah, Hamadan Air Base. I mean, air, air Base is in Iran. I mean, you don't right. give Air Base to it. Right, right. Is, is that a mistake for the survival of the Iranian regime, or is it a survival for the Iranian national interest? Uh, well, the regime did that because, because they need Russia. Yeah. Uh, so they are ready to sell Iran. Yeah, I mean, they don't in, care in about order, Iran. Exactly. They don't care about Iran. Yes. They care about staying in but power. It's like a mafia. mistake as far as the public is concerned. During the height of demonstrations, yeah. you do these things. Now you are telling the public not only they are corrupt, not only they are incompetent, but we also uh, are in the pockets of the of the of the big Russia. powers like Russia. That that vindicates the argument. Sorry, that that vindicates the argument that the Islamic Republic of Iran is a poor guardian of the Iranian national interest, Absolutely. and that the United States does not have issues with the national interests of Iran. It has issues with the way the leadership of the Islamic Republic manifests and views and acts on those interests. And this is the greatest talking point and fact that the administration and that the US has at its disposal. I think the biggest mistake the regime could make is when it comes down to uh, the time it has to make a major decision on um, massive use of force that if it goes in that direction, it's not going to really solve its uh, sense of crisis. I think that's the worst decision it could make for itself and for Iran as well if it goes down the road of violence, because uh, you have a very deeply frustrated society that will explode if it's confronted with violence. I don't think Iranians are just going to fall back that easily. And so people like Rouhani that you know, claim to have to be more logically inclined than their opponents within the regime, if they realize that, I think that's important, that there's no continuation if they use force. But I don't expect people like that to win out ultimately. I think you know, the regime has a lot of crazies that have said they'll burn Iran down to the ground, and they will. Um, but as a whole, if the regime goes down that route, that'd be very unfortunate. So far, I think it's very clear that Khamenei has learned from history. I do think he's a student of history, um, especially. Not a very good student, though. Soviet. No, I think he is, actually. I think Soviet and Russian history, he has studied carefully the KGB and, and Tiananmen Square. Uh, he realizes it's the age of social media. He has not allowed massive violence and the kind of, you know, the kind of visuals that can really cost him legitimacy and lose Europe, as you said. Uh, I think that we can expect him to maintain that sort of discipline for the regime. 
Um, I think to answer your question about what kind of mistakes, we're in a fortunate position in that we have all of this civic mobilization, this galvanization of, of popular will against the regime, not really because the regime has made any uh, you know, pivotal tipping point kind of mistake lately. They haven't done much of anything. It's been the outside pressure, the, 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 the economic, the weight of 40 years of totalitarian rule that can only get you to be worse and worse and worse in terms of the morality of the state, in terms of the corruption of the state, in terms of the, 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 the ability to respond to crises, the, the environmental crisis, the social crises. The, the, it's, it's the weight of the 40 years of that kind of totalitarian power that is costing the regime, not a specific kind of mistake. If anything, Khamenei, I think, has been very smart, very smart, very astute about history. And I don't think he's going to make these big mistakes, but I think he's, he's going to lose, 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 because the weight of 40 years of totalitarian uh, tyranny combined with these massive economic sanctions is just too much for any kind of totalitarian regime to be able to sustain. And the regimes could change without any violence, or yeah. without not much violence. Yeah, I mean, well, that's what happened to Shah's regime, and that's what happened to Soviet Union. There's no reason for us they to can collapse on themselves. We can think about all the pos negative possibilities, um, Ali Reza, but we can also think about all the ways that things could just kind of dissolve, and we have a transitional government, and we have democratic rule. I mean, it, the, Iranian, the Iranian regime is not worse than the Soviet Union. The Iranian regime is not worse than, than uh, Czechoslovakia. It's not worse than Poland. It's not, those, those were very repressive regimes. And I, I agree. I mean, it could go in that direction. But thinking back on the history of Iran, I can't think of any historical event where there hasn't been major violence. Even the revolution, there's a lot of violence. Not a lot of violence. Uh, there Not was a lot actually, of violence. No, yeah. it was a nonviolent revolution. The violence came after the, the, the Islamic Republic was... No, and the build-up to go read... Um, oh, there, were, there, were, there, were, there were some violence during the revolution. Go read the Fall of Heaven. I mean, if you look at Sinema Rex, 400 Cinema people Rex. died, yeah. and then... That's not mass violence. Go read uh, uh, Fall of Heaven. It's really well documented. Yeah. So I don't think it's just going to, you know, there's going to be a peaceful collapse of the regime. I think it'll be rapid. It'll be. Uh, my heart wants me to believe that, but my mind says that's one possibility among several, mm -hmm. and that's at the ideal end of the spectrum. I don't, I don't think it'll be at the ideal. End not, of the not rapid in, in the time it takes for the regime to collapse, but in that we won't see it coming, and then it'll just, it'll just go. Yeah, and you have to consider also Iran is a deep, it's a very deeply divided society. There's there's still a core group of people who believe in the regime and its message, and they'll beat up a scarfless woman. These like Bastiji women that come out of nowhere and start beating people, and they're not even regime officials. There are people there like that in Iran. Just give them arms. They'll defend what they have to defend. Uh, so I, I don't see how that just all goes away, that this base the regime has built, although maybe shrinking it just completely shrinks away? I mean, I, I would hope so, but I'm not sure. It's happened many times in history. Mm. So I want to be mindful of everyone's time and also our C-SPAN audience. We have a hard stop at 1.30. I apologize for not being able to take your questions, but I hope this has been interesting yeah, good, to everyone. My favorite quote of the panel, thankfully, it's really getting bad. <laughs> <laughs> And I think, I think that's, that's very important because that's where the momentum is. <laughs> and I'll try to learn that in Persian at some point. But I'd like to thank all of my panelists for, for being here today. I hope it was beneficial.